Shalom, Mishpacha. Welcome to this week's Kadima Talk, Anger and Passion. You know, I was contemplating this week exactly what compromises our lives. How do we get to where we're at in life? And I understand that our lives, who we are, is comprised of the decisions, the experiences, and the choices we've made in our lives on our journey. And the very reason that we chose to do these Kadima Talks is, is not just leadership, but to influence people to make wiser decisions, better choices, and have positive experiences through the transformative power of Messiah Yeshua and the Ruach HaKodesh. I'm going to start off with the law of magnetism or the law of attraction from John Maxwell in his 21 Laws of Leadership. I think this is law number nine. It's a great book. Uh, but he said, who you are is who you attract. According to this law, who you attract is not determined by what you want, but by who you are. And remember, who are we? We are those decisions, life decisions, life experiences, and life choices that we've made throughout this journey of life. To succeed, leaders need to build great teams. But in order to build great teams, leaders need to know whom they're looking for and what qualities they desire in these people. Every leader should make a list of the qualities they would like in the people that they want on their team. For example, they may want people who are innovative, teachable, and with a positive attitude. But as the law of magnetism teaches, what determines if leaders attract people with the desired qualities is not what they want, but who they are. Many of us had the experience of feeling attracted to certain teams or organizations because of their leaders, or on the other hand, we have at times felt that we didn't want to end up in teams whose leader was someone we didn't like because he or she didn't exemplify the qualities we value. In short, if a leader wants team members who take the lead and are responsible, he or she also needs to be willing to take the lead and be responsible. Now, I've heard many, many times over the years I've heard from congregation leaders, I've heard from pastors, I've heard from people at businesses. They've all shared that they can't get or keep good, reliable congregates or workers. But see, this is the law of attraction. It's a hard pill to swallow, but you attract what you are. Listen, if you don't keep time, your people won't. A common phrase in in the Messianic realm, and, and be patient with me for a second, don't take offense, but I hear this common in the Messianic realm that we're granola congregations. We have all the nuts and flakes. But if we take this back to the law of attraction, we attract who we are. So don't be nutty. Don't be flaky. We need to be consistent. We need to be strong leaders. We need to be presentable. We need to have a spirit of excellence. All the things we've talked about here in the last year and a half. If leaders don't like what they see in their team, they should check out who they are as leaders. There's probably something in their magnetic field that is attracting people with a particular behavior to their team but this behavior may not be what they are looking for in others. Unfortunately, the leader may be the real cause of the problem. We have a lot of compliments when people from the outside come and visit us here at Congregation Zion's sake. They talk about being a well-oiled machine. Everyone's in place. Everyone's doing what they're doing. But many of you know my background. I retired after 22 years of naval service in a submarine force. So guess what over 65, 70% of this congregation here is comprised of? active duty, retired military, veterans, retirees from all the branches. We're here in the Hampton Roads region of Virginia. We have 35 military installations within 40 nautical miles of where I sit right here. So we've got either the retirees or the retirees, they still work on post. We've got active duty, some on deployment, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, Army. We've got them all here. 
So it's the law of attraction, law of magnetism. They come, they're here with us, and they bring those skills, those talents, the integrity, the character, all those skill sets they pick up in the military. And, uh, and we're blessed to have those who are loyal and committed. John Maxwell believes that the people who are drawn to a leader share similarities in some key areas with him or her. There are six key areas where common ground is usually found. Number one is attitude. It's rare for positive and negative people to be attracted to one another. Attitude is one of the most contagious qualities, and people who see challenges as opportunities don't usually want to hear others who talk about how bad things are all the time. People who have positive energy tend to stay away from people who have negative energy. You know, I've shared this before, but we shipped containers around the world when we started as a congregation. And uh, we worked with Jezreel. They're still in uh, New York. We had a warehouse here in uh, Chesapeake, but unfortunately had to close. And we shipped our first container to Israel. The entire cost of the things we had to put in it, the shipping costs, was some $22,000. But when we proposed to do this, our checking account (laughs) literally had like $53. And there was a lot of naysayers that you can't do it. I mean, negative. The negativity just came out of nowhere. You can't do that. We can't have the money. How are we going to raise those funds? And yet, three months later, we were supernaturally blessed to see that container. And remember Romans 1.16, to the Jew first. So the first container we shipped went to Israel. And it was such a blessing. We had above and beyond what it cost to ship that container. And from that point on, we shipped dozens of containers before we were done with the warehouse. So attitude is everything. People who have positive energy tend to stay away from people who have negative energy. you got to have a good attitude. Next is generation. I've shared this before. Age is critical. This is why we have a diverse staff, not just in ethnicity, but in age. As a person who leads the congregation, I tend to reach 10 years ahead of me and 20 years behind me. That's the average. So I'm in my late 50s. I'm attracting people into their late 60s, early 70s, and 20 years behind me into their late 30s. And so to cover this entire spectrum, you've got to have a diverse Lador Vador generation to generation staff. People tend to attract people of approximately the same age, and they also hire people similar in age to themselves. This occurs within teams, departments, sometimes even company-wide. The median age of Facebook employees in 2016, for example, was 29. 32% of Facebook workers are women, according to the self-reported data, because tech is a, what, a a young man's game. And so you want to diversify and reach across all these uh, age barriers, then you've got to have a diverse staff that speaks across those boundaries. Background. Background similarity means that two people may share a similar education, socioeconomic status, culture, religion with each other, and this situation strongly influences the level of traction or magnetism. People with similar backgrounds are more attracted to each other because the level of common understanding and trust between them is higher than the ones they have with people from different backgrounds. And of course, values. People are attracted to leaders whose values are similar to their own. It doesn't matter whether the shared values are positive or negative. Either way, the attraction is equally strong. Think about someone uh, like Adolf Hitler. He was a very strong, charismatic, and influential leader, but his values were rotten to the core. What kind of people did he attract? Leaders with similar values. Giftedness. People don't want to follow mediocre leaders, but they're attracted to talent and excellence, especially in their area of giftedness. Whenever we're looking to learn and improve, we look for the best. And this is why we talked several Kadima talks ago about the spirit of excellence. This goes hand in hand with giftedness. As a leader, it means you need to be constantly improving to attract highly talented people to your organization. And leadership ability. People naturally follow leaders stronger than themselves. 
He has another law called the law of the lid. On a scale of 1 to 10, if you're a 4 in leadership, you'll never attract a 5 through 10. You'll only get 4s and below. So this is why it's so critical to keep developing your leadership skills to improve in this area because people naturally follow leaders stronger than themselves. But we also need to factor in the law of magnetism, which states that who you are is who you attract. So if you're a level 7 leader when it comes to leadership, if you're more likely to draw 5s and 6s, Uh, to you more than twos and threes. The leaders you attract will be similar in style and ability to you. And so, you know, I want to pause here because I want to put this all together. This played out profoundly for me on my second submarine when I was uh, what we used to call a hot running first class petty officer. And, uh, And I assumed the extra duty of being the ship's first lieutenant, which means I ran deck division. So we would have a pool of maybe seven or eight seamen who we referred to in the Navy as undesignated. They weren't sure what they wanted to do in the military. So they come in, they go through boot camp, basic training, then they come right to the ship. And they look around to the various divisions and see jobs that they may like to do. And then they do what's called striking for that rate or that job. And they apply for and generally get to do that job, but they don't know what to do before they get in. So they experience, get on the ship and experience. In the meantime, while they're making that decision, they're assigned to deck division, which is what I ran. So you've got all seven or eight young guys who are 18 and 19 years old. Uh, they're wildcats. They're not sure what they want to do. Uh, they stand helmsmen and planesmen when we're underway. They drive the ship. But when we're in port, they're the ones that take care of all the outside decking. So the painting, all the railings, all the stuff that's external to the ship when we're on the surface, we took care of that, which was a, you know, you're a metal ship in salt water. It is a never-ending battle to keep that ship seaworthy and ready to go in a moment's notice. And so part of our uh, undertakings when we're inside the ship was we cleaned all the, well, in the Navy, we called them heads, but you refer to them as restrooms. Uh, But because of depth charges, we don't have uh, ceramic sinks or toilets. All of ours are stainless steel. So once a week on Fridays, we have what's called field day, and the entire ship gets cleaned from top to bottom, fore to aft. And so as the leader of the deck division, as first lieutenant, uh, the three heads on board the ship, my guys took care of those. Now, I want to share this for a minute because remember what I began with here in the beginning was our lives are made up of these decisions, these choices, these experiences we've made in life. And for me, this this was a watershed event. And it's, it's not something I'm proud to share, but I want to share because it's critical here uh, and it brings enlightenment to this. And so a lot of these guys are young, they're cocky, they think they know everything, you know, they're young men. And, uh, and it's, we used to call them sea lawyers. They've been in the Navy six months, but they're experts on the field of law and how the military works. And it's just the way it is uh, uh, when you bring young men together in a ship. And so we're in their middle level head. And uh, my one guy, he's 18 years old. He's been on the ship three months. And he would not be quiet. He had a very colorful vocabulary. And he was sharing that with me about my lineage, about my mother, where I came from. And it was really starting to get under my skin and irritate me. So I tell him, hey, listen, man, and I'm going to be blunt. This is the Navy. I just said, shut up and get back to work. We've only got a few more hours. And uh, he had a greeny, what we call like a scrubbing pad. And that's how we cleaned the toilets. So he had that in the toilet, knelt up, turned around, looked at me and threw it at me with, you know, toilet water. And it hit me right in the neck underneath my chin. It splattered on my uniform or ran down my chest. Now I'm mad. So I bull rushed him. And I put my forearm up and I come against his back. And what I wanted to do was just shove him down. But what happened is when I did that, his back jerked forward, his head snapped back, 
And with his mouth open, he planted right into the bulkhead, right into the wall, hard. And he turned around and looked at me, and blood was coming out of his mouth, and the four bottom teeth on his front of his face were broken out, making a half moon uh, shape. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I thought, man, this is it. I'm done. My career's over. We're both going to Captain Mass. Uh, And what happened? He got to me, and I let anger take control. I did something I should have never done. I sat back. I looked at him. He looked at me. I said, well, you're going to need to go to medical. He's like, what do I tell him? I said, at this point in time, I don't care. The choice is yours. You, you tell him you hit the bulkhead, which is true. You tell him I shoved you into it, which is true. I don't care. He leaves the ship. 15 minutes later, I got a call from the chief of the boat. He's a very Marlboro man looking kind of a guy from Montana. And he calls me in and he's mad. He's like, Carlson, what happened to that guy? I had a real gravelly voice. He's a lifetime smoker. And I said, what did he tell you? He said, his, his mouth hit the bulkhead. I said, that's exactly what happened. He knew better. He said, you expect me to believe that? I said, hey, listen, Cobb, whatever he told you, that's what happened. That was our agreement. And, uh, and was it completely honest? You know, I'm telling you now as a Messianic rabbi, was that the honest answer? No, but I'm going back uh, decades of time to tell you the story of what really happened. And so this gentleman came back, and of course, dental fixed them all up. He was good as new. But we both had life, radical life-changing experience at that moment. I learned right then and there never to lash out in anger. I learned to turn that anger into passion, which is what I'm going to talk about here in a second. But this all, and from that point on, I kept track with this young gentleman throughout his career. He actually went on to become a senior chief quartermaster in the submarine force, well-decorated. We, we, we both had a refining moment there. And, and for, for him, it kind of knocked some sense into him. It, I'm not saying that in a good way, but it also knocked some sense into me. And what happened was that was the environment of that ship at that time. We had a skipper. I'm not going to say the names. I'm not going to tell you the ship because I don't want anybody to be embarrassed by this. But the skipper, the captain of that ship was a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. And you never knew from day to day who you were going to get. You're going to get the good guy who was your best buddy, or you're going to get the guy who wanted to literally tear your face off and throw you overboard. So every day was very interesting because you didn't know what to expect. And so this is one of the key things of leadership is to have consistency in who and what you are and not pinging back and forth like this, good guy, bad guy, crazy guy, uh, you know, astute guy. And so th- this got so bad as a deck division, and I told you I, uh, we were in charge of the topside, every morning and when he would come on board the ship, he would prowl around topside 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes until he found something that was incorrect or wrong. And the longer he looked, the madder he got which means it was all the longer I was going to be chewed out for what was wrong topside. So I'm going to be honest, I learned to bait him. And so what happened was every morning before he came on board the ship, I would put something up there purposefully right close to the hatch that was apparently out of order, shouldn't be there. I'd put down a life preserver. I put a rope. I just put something that didn't belong there. So he could immediately come, find it immediately, holler at me, get it over with, and we'd resolve it. And so you, you learn to deal with this. But he was the skipper. And so that law of magnetism speaks to this. There was an anger that beset over the entire crew. It had come upon me. It had come upon this young gentleman that was working for me in deck division. And I come to the realization that's not really who we are. But because of the spirit of what the skipper had, this magnetism, this law of attraction. See, we didn't get to choose to go to the ship. You're assigned to it. But it was pervading the entire crew. And for the time we were on there, under that leadership, 
The crew wasn't good. We didn't do well in our exams. We didn't do well in ORS. We didn't do well in our tactical exams. The ship did very poorly. Nobody worked together. Everyone was angry. And that's because it reflected upon the leader. That's what this is all about. And so th this was a, a watershed moment in my naval career and in my life. And in this moment of anger, did not let it consume you, not let it take over who you and what you are. And so often in America, so many people are angry. And what they do, they do out of anger. But it's the wrong choices, the wrong decisions, the wrong experiences that come forth out of this. I learned to turn that anger into passion, into zeal. Actually, because of what I did, on that deck division. I learned from that moment. I stopped being like that. We turned that division around. We had the best-looking ship on the waterfront. And because of that assignment, what we went through, I got selected for chief. Literally just a few months after I'd been in the Navy for eight years. I was in Navy eight years, four and a half months, when I was selected to make chief petty officer. And if you're anything uh, from the military, have a military background, You'll know how amazing that is. I didn't understand it at the time when I made it, but I look back and now reflect upon this, and wow, that's just crazy. I was wet behind the ears. I had not been in the Navy that long, and now they're making me a chief petty officer. But it was because of these experiences and the ability to turn us around and even in a bad situation come out on top of it by being flexible, by being uh, having a teachable spirit, and by turning that into passion and a zeal to be the best, to have that spirit of excellence, to do the best I can possibly do. The body has no passion. We've lost passion in the greater body Messiah, and it's evident in, in the greater body week after week. Uh, growth, success, it all comes from a great zeal and passion. If we look at our great leaders in the Word, Abraham, Moses, Pinchas, Joshua, Samuel, David, Elijah, Matthew, Maccabeus, Yeshua, even the 12 Talmudim, Shaul, Paul, they all had great passion and zeal. And every one of these examples, and there's even more scripturally and biblically, but they radically changed the world forever. And uh, I'm accused of hollering sometimes, being loud and boisterous when I speak when I'm on the Bima. But I'm actually not hot. It's passion. It's zeal. Jeremiah said that God's word was like a fire in his bones, and he and he, and if he tried to contain it, he couldn't. He was on fire with it, and I feel that way sometimes. I'm not Jeremiah, but I feel the passion. I have a great zeal and love for the Lord, for Yeshua, and and it comes out in the dynamics of when I speak and who I am. It and I don't. This is my inside voice. I heard that all my life growing up as a kid. And in fact, my one best friend's father. I found out later in life referred to me as loudmouth, and that kind of bothered me a little bit when I was young. Uh, but the reality is that's how God created me. I don't know how to whisper. I, I don't have a toned-down voice. I speak from the diaphragm. It comes bursting out. And, uh, and when it comes out with passion and zeal, sometimes it sounds a little bit like thunder. But God created me to do exactly what I'm doing right now, and he's given me the passion to do it. And like these biblical examples, this raging fire for the kingdom of God, it was passionate and it burned within them, within their heart, within their spirit, and their soul. And, uh, you know, as we move forward, um, I, this is going to sound weird, but the Muslims have passion. They're ready and willing to die and kill you for their beliefs. They'll pull out their prayer rug five times a day. They pray regardless of uh, what you, the government, or anybody else thinks. Because of this, uh, you know, they're growing in the world. They've laid siege to our cities, our governments, our nation. They're making great inroads while the body of Messiah is lethargic and complacent and nary saying a word or lifting a finger in protest. We're told uh, you can't pray in school. We're like, oh, okay. But you can if you're Muslim. 
And so uh, most in the body of Messiah shirk from a fight, and they hide in our prayer closets waiting for the shofar to sound. Why is that? Because we've lost our first love. In Revelation 2, verses 1 through 4, the angel of the Messianic community in Ephesus writes, Here is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold menorahs. I know what you have been doing, how hard you have worked, how you have persevered, and how you can't stand wicked people. So you tested those who call themselves emissaries but aren't, and you found them to be liars. You're persevering and have suffered for my sake without growing weary. But I have this against you. You've lost that love you had at first. And, and what does that really mean? Well, you know, I can speak seven or eight messages upon this. But what this really is, think about when you first came into the kingdom, when you first got saved. Come on, man, you were on fire. You just felt the transformative power of the kingdom of God at work in your life. And you're all riled up, and, and you're sharing this fire, and you're telling your friends, man, you you got you to gotta receive this Jesus that I just received. you you got to come to Yeshua. Man, you're not going to believe this experience I had. And then what happens? Well, then we start getting some discipleship and training, and people start telling you, oh, just settle down. And, and over time, it kind of becomes lukewarm. But the Lord doesn't want that lukewarm. He wants that fiery passion when you first came into the kingdom, and he wants you to be on fire for him. You know, corporations, organizations, movements, men have spent copious amounts of time, energy, and money attempting to figure out what makes various people or organizations successful. For success, human nature tends to look at the credentials, the intelligence, education, even the looks, the outside appearance for the answer to success. In reality, more than anything else, it's your passion. Passion is what makes the difference. If we pause to look at the lives of effective leaders, you're going to quickly see that there, there's no pattern. There's no single recipe for success. If there was, we'd be pipelining it. There'd be a six-week school, and everyone would be a CEO when they get done with this. But that's not the case because everyone has what? Different decisions, different choices, different experiences in their background. We're all different. So if we pause and look, we see that quickly that there's no pattern. There's no single recipe for success. Listen, more than 50% of all CEOs of Fortune 500 companies had C or C-minus averages in college. Nearly 75% of all U.S. presidents were in the bottom half of their classes. More than 50% of all millionaire entrepreneurs never finished college. Passion is what allows ordinary people to do extraordinarily great things. There's a couple of truths about passion that I want to challenge you with as we start to wind this down today. First, passion is the first step to achievement. Your desire determines your destiny. This is why I shared this not-so-glittery story of my own background, because anger will raise up and subdue passion. And you've got to turn anger and bitterness into passion and zeal, because that is what determines your destiny. My life changed forever that Friday afternoon on that ship decades ago. And it defined my destiny to bring me to where I'm at today. The stronger your fire, the greater the desire, the greater the potential in you. Passion, number two, increases your willpower. Passion increases your willpower, but there's no substitute for passion. It is the fuel for the will. Like I shared in our shipping container, we had a passion and a desire. We're going to do this. We didn't have the financial means to do it, but we had the passion, which brought the willpower, which brought about the strength to perform it and get it done. If you want anything badly enough, you'll find the willpower to achieve it. We find out what's really important in your life because what you make time for is what you're passionate for. You know, I've had many, many people come to me in the last 20 years and ask me to mentor them. 
but they really don't want me to mentor them. They don't want to do the work. They don't want to do have the passion. See, when we got involved in this, no one picked me up by the hand and said, hey, Rabbi, here's how you go and get this done. I had a passion and a zeal to serve God, and it made a way. Proverbs says a gift makes a way for a man. And so in that, the Lord guided me down the paths that I needed, and I had and made the time to do what we're doing today. It's up to you. Your passion increases your willpower. Passion creates changes. In the end, your passion will have more influence than your personality. Passion creates great changes in you and those around you because people seek those who are passionate in what they do. It will draw people to you, your mission, your business, your vision for the congregation and where you're going. Four, passion makes the impossible possible. When God ignites fires in the soul, impossibilities vanish. A fire in the heart lifts everything in your life. A person with great passion and few skills always outperforms a passion with great skills and no passion. Passion comes from seeking God with all your heart. Passion comes from laying other things aside. It allows for sacrifice to pursue the goal. Passion comes from being dissatisfied with the status quo. When passion for God begins to stir within you, no one can keep you from the altar. And when that happens, a road to Damascus encounter is imminent. When you're going through a transformation, you couldn't keep me from the altar. Jeremiah, again, said God's word was like a fire that burned in his bones. He couldn't contain it. Get on fire, Mishpocha. Get the fire of passion and do all that you seek and desire to do with the fire of God raging in you. Make life better for those around you. Learn to make better decisions, better life choices, and to have better experiences in the kingdom of God. You know, Spurgeon once said, set a man on fire and people will come for miles to watch him burn. Let the passionate fire of the kingdom of God burn in you, whether it's in ministry, whether it's in business, whatever it is, and mishpacha, they will come to watch you burn. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.